Well, good evening, everybody. So glad you are here with us. Those of you joining us online, thank you so much for being here. Um, when I was 12, many of you know this, I was raised uh, overseas on the mission field in Spain. And um, we got to come back to the States one year every four years there. So four years there, one year here. We ended up in huge metropolitan areas like Des Moines, Iowa, or even more uh, impressively, Prairie City, Iowa. Halfway to Pella. You've heard of Pella doors and windows. So, you know, we're on the map, but this is actually halfway there. So 20 miles outside of Des Moines. And uh, what do you do when you're a 12-year-old young man um, in Iowa on a Wednesday night? Well, naturally, you go to Calvinist Cadets. That is their scouting program at the <laughs> Christian Reformed Church where all of the people from my little K through eighth grade school that had a total of probably like 50 students, you know, in this big building uh, there, uh, we went. And so I jumped in and man, uh, the other kids were kind of like, ah, my mom's forcing me to be here. Oh, this is so lame, you know, and everything. I was like, what? You get a light tan shirt with like, I don't know, probably had little, you know, thingies. What do you call those? Uh, yeah. Okay, those things. And then, yeah, I had two patches for badges, and they were snap removable. So you could wash the shirt, but not, you know, fade the badges. Oh, yeah, no, no, it was high tech. And, and they were, the badges were all like in little, like, diamond shape, and so they all kind of stacked together. So you could actually, like, get, like, 20 badges on one side, 20 on the other. I hit that thing like a freight train. I mean, I literally, I came in like a wrecking ball, guys. I did. I, I hope, I hope you, none of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, but, and man, I went after it. I mean, the other kids were kind of like, you know, for Brian Regan, those of you who know, I was the cran man. I was mixing it up with everybody. Cran apple, cran grape, cran, you know, I was like, bam. Every week I was getting like three badges, knot tying, fishing, bow and arrow. You know, I was just going for it. You know, I was filling up. I was like, I got one year, you know, till we go back to Spain. These guys have like the rest of their lives. I have one shirt, one year, let's go. And sure enough, I actually filled up two batches, two whole chest badges. Oh, my friends like, slow down. But, and I hoped I would get this regional award. I did not. I don't know. There must have been other people even more impressive than me. Hard to believe, I know. But, um, <laughs> but one of those badges was uh, sheltering or like wilderness survival, right? And so what I had to do for that was in our little farmhouse that we were out in the middle of nowhere in the country, I had to like gather some sticks and get some twine and, and tie it together. And some of you guys actually are real survivalists and could actually survive in the you know, wilderness in the wilderness, uh, but I was, but I, hey, I got the badge, I tied it together, I kind of had a shelter and like spent, you know, 20 minutes under there, like, okay, I survived, I got the cool badge, but um, here's the thing, guys, I survived that badge. In life, how many of you guys would agree wilderness experiences come our way? And those, unfortunately, are not as easy to prepare for as I was able to, or thought I was able to do as a 12-year-old young man just outside of Prairie City, Iowa. Unfortunately, the desert seasons, the wilderness seasons in our life uh, come. Uh, they don't always ask permission. They don't always tell us they're coming. They don't always, they're not on our radar screen. But uh, perhaps you've been through a desert season, a wilderness season in your life. And I believe that God, our Father, does want us to be equipped and does want to prepare us, and does want to speak to us so that we're ready when that season comes. We're in the middle of a series called Come With Me. And I dare say, sometimes Jesus' invitation to come with him and walk with him leads right in the middle through a desert. Would you agree? And we're going to talk about what a desert actually is. Some of you are already tracking with me, maybe because you're in one. 
But see if this resonates with you, the words of uh, King David in Psalm 55. God, listen to my prayer. This isn't on the screen. Just listen. God, listen to my prayer. Don't hide your heart from me when I cry out to you. Come close to me and give me your answer. Here I am, moaning and restless. I'm preoccupied with the threats of my enemies and crushed by the pressure of their oppression. They surround me with trouble and terror. In their fury, they rise up against me in angry uproar. My heart is trembling inside my chest as the terror of death seizes me. Fear and dread overwhelm me. I shudder before the horror I face. I say to myself, if only, if only I could fly away from all of this. Have you ever felt that way? I say to myself, if only I could fly away from all of this. If only I could run away to the place of rest and peace. I would run far away where no one could find me, escaping to a wilderness retreat. David knew what it was to be in the desert, to be in a wilderness season. What about Job? Chapter three says this, his first speech in the book of Job. Let the day of my birth be erased. There's a start for you. How are you, how are you doing, Job? How are you feeling? Well, let the day of my birth be erased. And the night I was conceived... Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it. Let the darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar. Never again to be counted among the days of the year. Never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy Let those who are experts at cursing, ooh, this is good. Let those who are experts at cursing, hopefully this is none of you. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Wow. Guess what? If you're in a season of desert, if you're in a season of wilderness, first thing I believe God wants you to know is that you're not alone. So this message goes out. Listen, if you're not, like if you're here and you're like, oh my gosh, 2023 is off to the greatest start ever. My business is booming. My stock is going through the roof. Uh, We just bought a new Ferrari. Our home just got remodeled. And my wife is wanting to make out with me the whole time. I don't know, whatever. Like (laughs) if that's you, praise God. Like we rejoice with you. Don't feel bad. Enjoy that. Enjoy, Enjoy the seasons of God's blessing. But I dare say that there may be a time when, when you need this. So tuck it away. But this really goes out to those who are here. I know in a, in a, in a group this size, there's probably one person here, I bet more than one, who literally had to pull yourself up by your boots to get here tonight. Who had to put on your game face and go, I'm gonna be seeing other Christians and I need to kind of like, The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm doing great, doing great. But inside, you're falling apart. Inside, you're struggling. Inside, if you could write a psalm, it would sound like Job. Let the day of my birth be cursed. Or it would sound like David. I'm overcome with terror, with fear, with darkness. If that's you, and there are only one or two of you or three of you here, I believe that God would literally commission a weekend to say, I see you, and this one goes out to you. This one goes out to you in your desert season. I love you, I see you, I know where you're at, and I wanna speak to you in the midst of your desert season. Is that cool? The rest of us, we can tuck it away. This year has been 
bit of a season of, of desert for, for my wife and, and me. Um, we had just a lot of things collide. You know, kids moving away and empty nester syndrome. We had midlife. I know most of you thought I was in my late 20s, early 30s, but I'm a little older than that. In fact, I'm probably, if, I, if this is really midlife, I'm doing great because I'm going to live to be like 102, so that's good. A lot of things, right? Relationally, marriage, ministry, professional, all kinds of things. Chemistry, hormones, all kinds of things collided. And it's been a year where um, I think if you asked my wife or me, we would say, hey, we're not reading from a book like, oh, wilderness. Mm, wow, that sounds interesting. It's like, hey, ask us all about it. We'll be happy to tell you about what it's like living in the wilderness. Because guess what? When you're in it, part of the definition of a wilderness, I believe, is that you don't know how to get out. Like, it's not like there's a simple, like, three steps of like, oh, just do these three things. Just re- if, that, if that's the case, it's probably not a wilderness. There can be other things that's like, oh, just repent of this sin, and then God forgives, and then woohoo, you're back at it. You're back on the saddle. But a season of wilderness isn't like that. A season of wilderness is a, is a dark period where it hurts, where we're asking why, where we're confused, where we don't understand why God is allowing this, why we feel completely alone, why we feel desolate, why we feel abandoned. And I believe that God wants us to know that he sees us in this place. So deserts happen, just like ships, right? The bumper sticker, ships happen. I think that's one of them. Just try to see who my heathens are in the room, okay. <laughs> There's a passage that I ran across. I literally Googled in the midst of, of just what was coming from my own heart. I Googled fruit in the wilderness and there was a passage that came out and it was Hosea chapter two, verses 14 through 16. And I wanted to read it and we're gonna do something here that I think is gonna be life-giving. Um, we talked at the, be- uh, when was that? The beginning of last year? Did we start with the three-thirds? I guess we, was that a year ago? Oh my gosh, it was January of, wow, time flies when you're old, especially. We talked about the three-thirds, which is like a model for discipleship, which is kind of like in any given meeting, you can start off meeting with someone, whether they're a believer or not, and you start off by saying, hey, what have you put into practice from last time we met? And then you look upward and say, God, what are you speaking today? And then you look forward and say, what am I going to put into practice, right? But in the middle portion of that kind of format is two very simple questions that you can, can, here's a, this is for free, guys. You can have a Bible study with anyone with two questions. Are you ready? What does this passage tell us about God? And what does it tell us about us? Two questions. You could probably fill 20, 30 minutes of a lively discussion where God will meet you because guess what? God wants to reveal himself to us. And when we're asking God, what does this say about you? I believe that God is invited into that. He's attracted. When we're asking him, I want to know you. I'm not, I might not understand all the dots and tittles and dates and times, and, but, but I want to know you. What does this tell me about you? And what does this tell me about me or those around me? And so I'm going to read this, but I want to give opportunity. We've got a couple of mic runners, I believe. I want to give opportunity to just simply ask that question and let you guys respond. We texted it out. If you're not yet on our weekly text with the, the message uh, scripture for the following weekend, make sure to get on that. Use the QR code. Some of you guys hopefully receive that. Uh, Hosea 2, 14 through 16. And I'm going to give an opportunity just for you to answer. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about his heart? What does it tell us about us? So are you guys ready? Okay, here we go. Uh, therefore, okay, so first of all, the context of this is Hosea, the first of the minor prophets. He lived in like the 700s before Christ, okay? He prophesied to the northern kingdom. So Israel, there's 10 tribes that divided after the days of Solomon. The kingdom split, 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes 
These were Judah, Benjamin, those were the other 10. And uh, God sent prophets to speak his word, to call his people to repentance, to let him know he, he was still willing to forgive and so forth. So Hosea was one of the prophets sent to the northern kingdom. And, uh, and so interestingly enough, what's, what's one of the most interesting things about this is that in the book, it describes that God called him to go marry a, a fornicating woman or a woman of adultery. Now, it's not clear whether she already was an adulteress or whether God knew she would become, like she was of the character that she would commit adultery. Some would even argue that it was all allegorical and that it wasn't really true. But there's a number of scholars who believe and historians that, that really God called this prophet to say, go marry a woman who I already know is going to be unfaithful to you. And I want you to experience what I experience with my people. I want you to feel what I feel and to write from that place. Can you imagine that? Being called to marry someone who's gonna break your heart and betray you and have affairs on you. But God was like, I want you to partner with me in my broken heart for my people because they're worshiping other gods. They're going after other gods when I love them. I wanna be their bridegroom, their husband. I want you to feel what I feel and be able to declare to my people from that place of brokenheartedness. So that's where we enter in. And the first part of this chapter, man, you can read it, but the first few verses, I mean, it's an angry husband. It's like, man, I'm gonna cut off the vine and stop the rain, and I mean, I wanna get your attention. And I'm upset. I'm not happy about the lack of intimacy and about your unfaithfulness. And so it kind of goes into that, right? And so he's really kind of venting a lot of anger, but then it goes into these words in verse 14. Therefore, God speaking, I am now going to allure her, meaning the people of Israel, his bride, and I will lead her into the wilderness. There's that word for desert wilderness. And speak tenderly to her. There, where? In the wilderness. I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There, where? In the wilderness, she will respond as in the days of her youth, as the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Take a couple of minutes. You can follow along in the notes on your device if you want. That's also found on that QR code. But just take a moment. And if the mic runners would get ready, I'd love just to hear what you believe God is wanting us to know about his heart and about his character when after venting, yes, a lot of anger and frustration and talking about all the stuff that he's gonna do to get his people's attention, then he goes and, and takes this little tangent here. Anybody who wants to begin? Um, so I'm Jennifer. One of the questions you said is, how, what does this tell us about God? I think that the thing for me that jumped out to me immediately and continues to jump out to me is in verse 15, uh, wait, 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 verse 14, um, the, the speak tenderly to her, the word tenderly. And in a, another version I have on my phone, it's kindly, um, just the tenderness of the Lord, despite, you know, all the things that she had done and said, um, 
he still wants to speak tenderly to her because he's that kind of a God. So good. Yeah. Uh, I'm Andy. Uh, the, the word that came to me was for restoration, restoration, you know, the rest, restoration of the relationship, you know, meeting where, you, where you're at and then acknowledging you and bringing you close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. His willingness, right? The mercy of our God to have, to have a heart and a plan for restoring us. I love that. Somebody else, what do we see about God? Um, when I when I read that or when I let it sink in, it just makes me feel like God really hurts. I mean, we can really hurt his heart. Um, that's kind of what sets with me more is, you know, he hurts for us. And why would we want to break his heart? So good, yeah. Even as God, even as the most powerful all-powerful being in creation. He's willing to be knit to us in love and tenderness and relationship. So good. Somebody else? Haven't, oh, I was gonna say, I haven't heard from this side, so. I'm not sure like what point of view this is, but I think it just reminds me of like the fragility or like humanity in itself and how we aren't perfect, but he still is choosing us. That he already knew all of these things were going to happen, but that didn't deter him from choosing us, and he didn't have to do that. It's a reminder like, oh, he didn't have to do that, but he wants to, and he's continually pursuing. Just a continual like, wow, like he chose to create me. He knew what would happen, but he's not giving up on me. He's still pursuing no matter what I do. So good. He already knew before it even happened. A couple more. Yeah, so good. Thank you. Yeah, I see it as um, understanding deeper that how much God is a God of covenant and how much he will honor the covenants that he makes with his people. So even mm-hmm. in our wickedness and our brokenness, just like Crystal said, you know, he's, he's pursuing us throughout and, and maintaining that covenant and, uh, and trying to honor it. So. Mm-hmm. The part that sticks out to me is, I will lead. And it makes me think of those dark hours and times that even if I can't see, he will lead me. Mm, amen. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into what I mentioned. So uh, in verse 15, uh, it, it kind of had talked about like, you know, leading the Israelites into the wilderness and speaking tenderly. But in verse 15, it says, Therefore, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor, which, interestingly enough, means trouble, a door of hope. Yeah, so. um, Neil here. Um, I think the opposite of wilderness, I think of New York. And uh, and I think what's my New York and my New York is any any place that's really busy and takes my attention away and distracts me a lot. And the wilderness is a place where he wants you to focus. And so whether it's you have cancer or a, a, a 
you know, a job, you're jobless or your spouse left you or you're going through a divorce or your child died. When you're in the wilderness, all your attention goes to that one problem, right? In this case, the wilderness, every, all your energy goes thinking about you're being stuck, you're stuck in that wilderness. And I think God wants, sure, all of your energies to go to that, but in, in putting all your energies there, he will find you there because you're, you're not thinking about anything else but that wilderness that you're in. And I think he's, he's, he's in the midst of it. Uh, for me, it's the end of 16, and I just can't stop thinking about his displeasure with being called master and his desire to be married. So good. He's got all the angels worshiping, doing his bidding, right? We see that all over scripture, but man, he wants so much more with us. You know, so good. Uh, let's do Tina and then. Um, in the beginning, I noticed that it says, I will lead, I will speak tenderly, I will give back to her. And then in, in the second part of that, um, it says that she will come out and, um, and she will respond. And I, it just shows it takes two and that God is a God of free will. Like he doesn't force himself on us. He wants it to be our choice to choose. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, he acts, but there's a piece that we can choose how we respond. So good. Is it Eli? Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Eli. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, what jumps out at me is at the end as well where it um, says, you will call me husband and not a master. And so for me, that says that God doesn't want to be in charge of your life or in control of your life. He wants to be a part of your life. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, love how you guys are just, just seeing, just seeing, hearing what the Lord is revealing and, and seeing Him through this. I love that. So. Something that sticks out to me is uh, in verse fifteen, where it says, "There I will give her back her vineyards," and just like when when she leaves, right, whatever is lost, the Lord restores when you come back. Mm. So whatever you felt like you lost when you left Him, He restores when you come back to Him. Mm. So good. Good. So good. What an incredible promise. Um, yes. From somebody watching online, the wilderness is a place where God is constantly wooing us deeper into his heart. Mm. So good. That's good. Good, good. Wow. <laughs> We've been to church, so we could let out right now. 557, early. Everybody's happy. My wife is extra happy because it's the shortest message I've ever preached. So good, guys. Thank you so much. Is there? Oh, one more. Yeah, sorry. Yes. I'm Amy. Um, this passage really reminded me. I've been reading in Ezekiel lately, which is similar. Uh, Israelites are being taken into captivity because of their uh, lawlessness. They have turned from God. And there's these long passages where God talks about all of the terrible things that are going to happen to them because they have turned from him. And then randomly in the middle of all of these terrible things, he talks about how he will bless them. Mm. He's planning to bless them once they return, once they have 
learn their lesson and turn from their iniquities back to him. And he's planning all of these amazing blessings for them. And it just really speaks to me in the same way that this does, that he is planning for reconciliation and blessing and just a reuniting of his soul with ours type of thing, uh, even in the middle of discipline. Mm. So I just find a lot of hope from that, knowing that, you know, we will be disciplined because we do sin, but God is already planning for that. He's planning for the yeah. discipline, and then he's planning for the reconciliation that will come after. Mm. So good. He's like a couple of steps ahead. He's already thinking redemption. I think Dan. Um, and I went through a 10-year-long wilderness experience. Prior to that, I really felt like the presence of God and felt worked by God in affection and love. And I prayed um, something, and I said, I want more of you. Um, had I known what it was, I was going to endure, um, I probably wouldn't have prayed that prayer, but I walked through <laughs> a season, and I had a... Um, a mentor who was with me to, to guide me. I called him my senior eagle. Um, he ended up passing away like two years into it, and I got really lost in the desert. And uh, I have to give credit to Bill Hayes for this, who attends our church, but I went to lunch with him a few weeks back. And um, when I was in the middle of the desert, what happened was God was in front of me, and we, and we talked initially, and then he backed up a step. And he wanted me to draw near. I tried to draw near for a while, and I didn't sense his presence, so I turned around, and I sought pleasure pain seeks pleasure, and I sought God in another angle. <laughs> it wasn't God, and the amazing thing, though, is God, like she just said, the comment, the enemy meant for evil, God will turn to good. God, in some way, um, when I turned my back on him, somehow dipped around in front of me again, and I ran into him, and, and, uh, and I acknowledged that everything the enemy meant for evil, you know, God's going to use that. So I want to call out people that are older in this church that have been through the spiritual wilderness, like help carry the young people through. It's like an eagle. There's certain types of eagles that molt at a certain time in their life. And they go to the south side of a mountain and they pull their feathers out and talons out. And only the senior eagles that have been through it before will drop them food. The younger eagles won't. So you older people in this church are listening. You have a purpose. I know you're not respected in our society today, but you should be. Spiritually, you are. You're needed for the youth and people going through it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Is God speaking? Amen. <laughs> you don't need me. <laughs> thank you, Lord. Man, thank you, God, for speaking to us. Your word is so rich. Your spirit is so wise. We just open our hearts to everything you want to tell us and everything you want to show us about yourself, about us, about your good purposes and your good plans. Thank you. Yeah, you guys nailed it, guys. So much, so much good stuff there. God's alluring us, making a, a broad place. Thanks, guys. Uh, making a wide open space is that allure word, man. Just creating a, a wide berth for us to come near him. Speak tenderly. That literally means speak to our heart and our mind. To speak to our heart and our mind. Neil, you mentioned New York City and just all the distractions, man. Sometimes it's wilderness in, in, uh, in uh, the Hebrew, doesn't always mean like Sahara Desert with just sand. So it can mean the places outside of the village, outside of the cultivated soil, 
where the pastures would, would, would just sort of you know, be wild. And sometimes there would be food, sometimes there wouldn't, but it wasn't dependable. You couldn't necessarily grow things. You didn't control the crops. You didn't control what you got back from those places. It was just kind of like, well, if it rained, great. Maybe there was something to eat. If it didn't, then you were you know, completely dependent on the elements. I think we can all agree that that, that word desert uh, is, is a place where, in fact, if you want to throw up that definition, yeah, wilderness, a place, this is kind of my paraphrase, a place where things don't grow, or at least not easily, where formulas don't work, and we're forced to go without what we have relied upon to feed us. How many of you guys agree, man? Some, you know, we all have things that, we, that feed us, right? That feed our soul. I mean, there's certain kinds of music that feed my soul, right? There's certain kinds of food that feed my soul. There's certain kinds of, there's certain relationships I have that just encourage me, that I walk away like, Wow, get out of my way, man. I can do anything. I'm a man of God. Whatever it might be. And sometimes the Lord leads us through a season where we're cut off from some of those things and we begin to go, hey, wait, what's going on here? What's going on? I'm not getting what I need. That could be a season that you're in a wilderness. But God's saying, I want to speak to your heart. Sometimes it's in that that I'm working to soften the hardness of heart so that you can hear me, so that I can speak right to your heart and to your mind. Speak tenderly. Okay, so a couple of thoughts real quick. And I believe that, that God is saying to us, we can partner with him in his purpose for the wilderness. We can partner with him in his purpose for the desert. You know, just knowing that he is control, that he is in control, sometimes changes everything. We were at a staff retreat and uh, in January, last month, we were down in Manitou Springs and my wife and I were having some conversation and just the thought dropped in my mind and in my heart, you're in the wilderness and I see you. And literally, it brought hope. I mean, like that. Not, it didn't change anything around, but literally knowing that, oh, this is a wilderness. Oh, God sees what I'm going through. Oh, I'm on his radar. That brought hope, confidence, peace. I didn't say it made it all easy. I didn't say everything changed all of a sudden. But all of a sudden, something on the inside goes, my daddy sees me. I'm on his radar screen. It's okay. If you were a, an Air Force pilot behind enemy lines and you were downed, it says, beep, 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 my little, what is it, honing device, whatever the thing, you know, like they know where I'm at. They know I'm alive. They're sending help, right? It just all of a sudden can bring hope. There's been a theology in the church that says, uh, okay, so there was a bad theology that said, if you're encountering something difficult, it means you've done something bad and God is angry with you and you're being punished, okay? Everybody kind of, I mean, we've all kind of probably been around somebody who believes that or maybe, we, maybe you've had somebody tell you that and it's been very hurtful, right? So that's, we all agree, that's a terrible theology, right? Yes, okay, so that's not the truth of God's word that if you're going through something difficult, God hates you or you're being punished or you've sinned or you've done something wrong. So, but what did we do? We went all the way over here. We're like, no, 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 no. God never allows or even sends or even God doesn't have a purpose in anything painful. It's totally just chance. Oh, that's never God. God doesn't have anything to do with our pain. And so in our desire to go away from bad theology, guess what did we do? We created some more bad theology. Because now it's like, well, no, I guess it's just random chance that, you know, we lost our child. It's just random chance that I have cancer. It's just random chance. So, I mean, I hope God knows about it, but, you know, at the end, it's just random. Guess what? I don't think that's true either. I believe God wants us to understand. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson 
wrote a book called Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work. And he talks about the five scrolls that the Israelites would read at the festivals. Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Esther, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. And they would read one of those scrolls at each of their annual feasts. And it would remind them of a certain dynamic of their walk with God. But one of them was Lamentations. Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Talking about the pain that they felt to see their city go up in flames. And everything they held dear be taken from them out of discipline from God. You mentioned it. Even in discipline, God is loving. He's already two steps ahead. He's already looking at the restoration. You're absolutely right. But there's a piece of our lives where God can have a purpose in our pain. Does that make sense? So I want you, I don't want you to leave going, oh, wow, DJ said that everything that I'm going through is because of my fault. No, 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 no. But I want you to have hope in that God sees where you're at. And God can use difficulty and can use pain and can use grief and can use sorrow and can use loneliness and can use betrayal and can use heartache to do something good in your heart and to bring you closer to him and to help you become stronger and holier and more like Jesus through it. Does that make sense? Okay, he sees you, he knows you. It says, the little paragraph, the moment anger is eliminated from God, like he can never be angry, suffering is depersonalized, for anger is an insistence on the personal. It is the antithesis, or the opposite, of impersonal fate or abstract law. The God of the Bible is deeply personal and relational. His anger reinforces this reality. Uh, P.T. Forsyth says, God cares enough for you to be angry with you. God cares enough for you to be angry with you. Wives, husbands, have you ever been angry at your spouse because you expected something you care enough, it matters enough, it hurts deeply enough that you go, hey, top, time out, we need to talk about this. That hurt or that, I'm upset because let's, let's, let's get real here, right? God is the same way, guys. He cares intimately for us. So, what are some of the purposes that God has uh, for the wilderness? One of them, as in this passage, is to refine us from idolatry. Would you agree? We've talked about idolatry. God has led us through, man, from the uh, study of 1 John back, I think, in the fall, late fall, leading up into Christmas, and then even into the new year of come with me, and the idea of, man, one of the first things that God is doing is knocking down our idols, crushing the things that we go after in place of him. And absolutely, I believe in this passage, that's a prime example that God is saying, I love you. I want you to experience so much blessing, right? We're gonna read about it at the end here. Man, God has all kinds of blessing in store. But he's saying, I've gotta do this because I don't want, right? In fact, the first thing that he did when Adam and Eve sinned was remove them from the tree of life. He put an angel guarding at the, at the, at the entrance of the Garden of Eden because he's like, I don't want you to eat of the tree of life and live forever in this cursed state that you're in. I want you to be redeemed. I want you to be made new. I want you to be washed. I want you to be transformed. I want you to know my love. I want you to be able to love me back the way that I know you can. I want everything that stands between us to be eliminated. God loves us so much. He goes after idolatry. And we're gonna be talking, that's just gonna be a theme, I believe, that God is speaking to us as his church this year and peering us. So one of the, the, the questions that we can ask to cooperate with God when we're in a wilderness season is, what are you trying to burn out of my life? 
God, what are you trying to burn out of my life? God, is there a piece of idolatry? What are you trying to burn from my heart? Because I want to let go of that. I want that thing to burn to the ground so that I can be more in love with you and receive your love. So maybe think about that. That could be a question we can ask to partner with God. What about this? There's another uh, 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 purpose that God has in desert seasons in our life, and that is testing, right? Joshua and our teaching team came up with this idea. He called it the testing of the righteous. So it's the idea that, wow, sometimes we go through a desert season because we're actually getting it right. What? Anybody know any examples of that? Anybody? Jesus? Yes? Another one from the Old Testament? Job? What was he doing? He was righteous. He was honorable before God. He worshiped God. He offered sacrifices for his kids just in case they sinned against the Lord in their parties and stuff. So what did God do when the enemy comes? Hey, he's like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Check him out. He loves me. He worships me. We're tight. The devil's like, well, yeah, because you've blessed his socks off and you won't let me even get near him. God's like, okay, fine, go for it. You can't take his life, but everything else. And the devil's pretty good at <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, cool. Rolled up his sleeves, man. In one day, the roof fell down on his kids, killed his kids. The servant came in, said, we got attacked by bandits, flocks stolen, whatever. Then it went on. He still didn't curse the Lord. He was still faithful. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's songs written about his response in chapter one, at the end, I think it's verse 21. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you imagine a heart like that? When everything has been taken from you, to say, may the name of the Lord be praised. So then God's like, fine, you can even touch his body, just don't kill him. So he breaks out in sores, he can't sleep, his breath stinks like worms. I don't know, you read, it's... It's terrible, terrible, terrible suffering. His wife is like, curse God and die already. Let's get it over with, right? Like seriously, this is worse than living. We read that passage that we read earlier, and I'm at the day of my birth, be cursed. But he persevered. But again, he's an example of, he didn't do anything wrong. God was just testing and trying. And that, we can expect, could be the case in our lives, right? At certain times, God may lead us through a season where we're being tested, you know, it's interesting, the word in uh, the uh, Greek or and even Hebrew uh, for testing and tempting is the same word. Isn't that interesting? Same word. So in James, it says God does not tempt anyone, right? We're all tempted when our own sin is enticed. God doesn't tempt us, meaning testing us with the ultimate motive of bringing us down. But we read that God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. It literally says God tested him. So, same word, God doesn't tempt, so what's the difference? The motive. When we test, have any of you guys been in martial arts? Anybody? I know, I got one. I am a, well, was an orange belt in Tang Sudo, which is the military version of Taekwondo. I don't remember any of it other than, you know, that, that's it, that's it. I don't wanna pull a muscle. As I mentioned, I'm getting older. But one of the things that they do every so often is test for a belt. And here's the thing. If you could have asked anyone, we happened to meet in the Salvation Army gym at like Bruce Randolph and 
Franklin or something up downtown in the Cole neighborhood. Karen Eden, who used to be a meteorologist for Fox News, gave back. That was her way of giving back, was offering free lessons. So there's all these kids from the inner city. My two boys, I joined as well. It was free. We'd move the, the chairs from the chapel and just do it right there. That was our dojo. It was just one hour a week on Saturday. But every so often, we'd have a test. And I guarantee you, you could ask any one of those students what her motivation was, and every one of them would tell you she wants us to pass. She wants us to get the next belt. And she will train us. And she will make sure we learn our forms, right? So that we can pass and you can kick the, the oh, Tracy, I didn't, oh my gosh. We got, we got like two practically senseis in here, right? So you break the boards, you do all that stuff. But guess what? The teacher's committed to the student. She wants to make sure that by the time the test comes, it's basically almost a formality because it's a day of promotion. It's a day of victory. It's a day of invite your, your parents and invite your friends, because guess what? You're gonna get to break something and get that brand new. Right? Here's what I want you guys to get. The heart of God, when he leads us through a place of testing, is victory. The heart of God is to affirm you. The heart of God is not to seduce you, entice you, and try to see if you'll fail. The heart of God is to say, I want, I want the devil to know. I want the angels in heaven to know. And I want you, my son and my daughter, to know what my spirit is accomplishing in you, what my grace is able to do in you, how you're growing in me, how you're coming to know me better, how my grace is sufficient for you like Paul talked about. It's a day of victory. It's a day of promotion. It's a day of added authority in the spirit when God leads us through a season of testing. Don't ever let the enemy lie to you about that. He'll try, he'll try. He'll say, God's trying to destroy you. Guess what? The evidence, it kind of looks similar. <laughs> when God kind of lets several demons in and you have to fight them, it feels like they're trying to kill me. And guess what? Maybe they are. Like, right? God let Satan go after Job so clearly he's able to subcontract some of the testing. Would you agree? I'm, I'm, it's in the Bible. He's like, okay, go for it. Only because he knew Job could be victorious and he would be victorious. So it feels a lot like, wow, I feel like people are hating me and trying to kill me and have abandoned me and I'm alone. Feels pretty much just the same. But the Father's eye is watching over you and he's gonna bring you through to victory. Testing of the righteous. Somebody said Jesus, absolutely. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4, says these words, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness, there's that word, to be tempted by the devil or tested. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Ooh. He knew the word. He knew the word of God. He was ready. Even after 40 days of fasting, not eating, he was physically weak, but he was being tested in that season of the wilderness. But guess what? You guys all probably know this. What had happened immediately before he was led to the desert? You know it. I know you know it. Right before Matthew chapter three, verses 16 and 17, if you can pull that up. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. 
And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. You see, it was the father's word of affirmation. It was the father's word of identity of, I don't have any questions about you. I'm not scratching my head looking at you in confusion. I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. I know you love me. I know what you're going to accomplish by my spirit. I'm proud of you. Symbolically speaking, the Hebrew dads would take their son or daughter on their shoulders on their 13th birthday and parade them around saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Father's heart of pride, of joy, of affirmation saying, he's got it. The the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This kid's gonna go places. This kid's gonna make a difference in this world. That's how your father feels about you. And that's how he felt about Jesus. And so right before Jesus was led into the wilderness through a season of testing, he had heard the voice of the father. And I kind of wonder, was that what was being tested when he was out there? For those 40 days, we don't read of him hearing the voice of the father, do we? What voice was he hearing? Satan's voice. He was out there. Have you ever felt like you're in a place where, man, the only voice you hear is the enemy? Lying to you? Telling you you're worthless? Telling you that the Father's abandoned you? That you've sinned too badly? That you have disqualified yourself to be loved by God? That God has forgotten about you? That God is too consumed with judging your sin for even the blood of Jesus to be enough to wash it away and to be forgiven and to be made whole in him. I don't know, but I can tell you, Jesus was hearing the devil's voice and I wonder if it was the father's word just before that sustained him and he was holding on. And now my dad said, I'm his son whom he loves. With me, he is well pleased. My dad said, I'm his son whom he loves. With me, he is well pleased. I don't hear it right now. The only voice I hear is temptation, accusation, questioning, doubt, if you are, if you are, if you are. But he held on to the Father's word. I believe that that's one of the things that God is accomplishing in the desert, in your life and in mine, is that he's saying, hey, my word becomes that much more solidified in you. When you're being tested, when you're in the heat of the crucible, my word is being forged in your spirit. It's becoming part of who you are, even more than it ever was. I had a wedding uh, down in Sandstone Ranch, I think it's called, downtown, kind of our Larkspur kind of area down there. (coughs) And it was a bilingual wedding, and it was down in a little shelter there, and I had my iPad here, and I got there, and I had prepared everything and uploaded it to the iCloud. And one of the things that we do is, uh, uh, Dan taught me this, uh, brilliant teacher that he is with weddings and everything. So it's, it's personalizing it and coming up with their story. So their love story. You know, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so met back in whatever. And the first thing they did was go on a date to, you know, all you can eat sushi. And, you know, from there with the grain of sushi in her teeth, he knew that, you know, he loved her and whatever, you know. And so, uh, so I was all excited. It's very personalized, right? So I get there and I'm doing all the coordination. We get everybody in place and everybody comes in. I'm standing there. And I'm standing there and I say, well, before we get to the I do's, we wanted to share a couple highlights of your love story. I looked down at my iPad, there's nothing. There's nothing. It's blank and then it goes on to just the I do's and then the vows. And I'm like, I mean, this is live, this is real. No, there's only like six or seven family members, but still, like this is, we're in the middle of a wedding. 
and there's nothing on my iPad. And I look, and there's no Wi-Fi. There's no, there's no 5G. There's no, well, it's not even 5G, but there's no reception. There's no, I can't even link it to my phone to do the hotspot, all that stuff. I'm like, so, I mean, a tinge of panic and some sort of acid went down my spine <laughs> all through. Can you, can you imagine? It's the worst nightmare for an officiate. Like, literally, like, I'm like, well, before we do that, though, let me ask you, do you take him to be your husband? And, and then we never got back to that. See what I did there? Anyway, here's the thing. I had uploaded it to the cloud, but it never had downloaded to the device. When the Wi-Fi runs out, you really discover in a hurry what's saved to the hard drive. What's saved right here in this device right here. And I believe that the wilderness in our lives is a season where maybe the Wi-Fi kind of glitches out for a little bit and the Father's voice isn't constantly speaking over us. And he's saying, hey, I want to see what's on the hard drive. I want to see if what I told you you're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. If you, if you burn that into your hard drive so that even when the Wi-Fi goes out, you've got my word. You know what you can count on. Amen? If you're going through a dark season, know that God is solidifying something in you. And that's my second question is just how we can partner with God is saying, Lord, what are you trying to solidify in me? Sometimes he's trying to burn away something like idolatry, but sometimes he's trying to solidify something. Sonship, daughtership, you're mine. You belong to me. I love you. David said in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Right? We can be deliberate about that in the good times so that when we find ourselves in an unexpected wilderness season, we've got something on the hard drive that we can go, I'm not hearing God right now. I don't know if he really likes me right now, but I'm gonna hold on to this word. I'm gonna hold on to this promise until I make it through to the other side. Hold on to the word of God. The last thing, a third purpose. And this one is, oh man, this is the toughest one. This is a tough one. You know, burning away idols, can we say, ooh, that's bad? I mean the idols, not the burning of the idols, but idols. Ooh, that's bad. Solidifying his word and sonship. Ooh, that's good. Okay, so those were good. We're all in agreement. This third one is really, really tough. It's, I don't know how you want to phrase it. I would just say the killing of the self. You could say inviting us to walk in the crucified and resurrected life. That's the one that Abraham experienced in Genesis 22. God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac the son of the promise, the son that God had already said, it's through him that your descendants will be reckoned. Was that a bad thing? Is Isaac a sinful thing? Is Isaac a gift from God? Is Isaac part of what God had already said would be part of his plan? So how can it possibly make sense that God is saying sacrifice him? But yet he did. And I want to read you a little excerpt, it's three minutes, from A.W. Tozer's book, the pursuit of God, and it's in chapter two, the blessedness of only, uh, possessing nothing. And he says this, about three minutes, but, but I, I just, I can't say it any better than this, so just bear with me if you would. Even if he could get the consent of his wounded and protesting heart, speaking of Abraham, how could he reconcile the act with the promise, in Isaac shall your seed be called? This was Abraham's trial by fire, and he did not fail in the crucible. 
While the stars still shone like sharp white points above the tent where the sleeping Isaac lay, and long before the gray dawn had begun to lighten the cast, the old saint had made up his mind he would offer his son as God had directed him to do, and then trust God to raise him from the dead. God let the suffering old man go through with it up to the point where he knew there would be no retreat. And then he forbade him to lay a hand upon the boy. To the wandering patriarch, he now says in effect, it's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the boy. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may have the boy sound and well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The old man of God lifted his head to respond to the voice and stood there on the mount, strong and pure and grand, a man marked out by the Lord for special treatment, a friend and favorite of the Most High. Now he was a man wholly surrendered, a man utterly obedient, a man possessed who possessed nothing. He had concentrated all in the person of his dear son, and God had taken it from him. God could have begun out on the margin of Abraham's life and worked inward toward the center. He chose rather to cut quickly to the heart and have it over in one sharp act of separation. It hurt cruelly. Does any part of your walk with God ever hurt cruelly? Has any question you've said, God, how could you allow this? Has it hurt? Have you cried yourself to sleep? Have you cussed at God? Don't answer that. It hurt cruelly. I have. But it was effective. I have said that Abraham possessed nothing, yet was not this poor man rich. Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, and goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends. And best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything but he possessed nothing. He had everything, but he possessed, he controlled nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. After that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never again had the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart. If we would indeed know God in growing intimacy, we must go this way of renunciation and surrender. If we are set upon the pursuit of God, he will sooner or later bring us to this test. Abraham's testing was at the time not known to him as such. He didn't know he was being tested. Yet if he had taken some course other than the one he did, the whole history of the Old Testament would have been different. God would have found his man, no doubt, but the loss to Abraham would have been tragic beyond the telling. So we will be brought one by one to the testing place and we may never know when we are there. At that testing place, there will be no dozen possible choices for us, just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. Does something in your heart just cry out? I know we can't imagine, you know, sacrificing our own kids. I have four kids. You know, if God, again, you know, God doesn't want, human sacrifice and, and, and so forth. But just if God went after the most intimate thing that we treasure, I believe there's something inside of us that says, God, you're worthy. 
God, you're worthy of that kind of worship. Whatever it would be, God. I don't know how I would do it. I don't know, but, I, but you're worthy of that. Like Abraham, God is calling us into intimate friendship, into being people, men and women, that he can trust with much and promote with great authority because he knows there's complete surrender. That kind of stuff happens in the desert place. It happens when we learn to suffer like Jesus. Philippians 3 speaks of Paul crying out, saying, I want to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him, what? In his death. Becoming like him in his surrender to the Father's will. Becoming like him in his renunciation that we just read about. For that's the secret of true intimacy and true friendship, true worship with God. Here's the thing, guys. I'm going to close with this. The cool part of it is when we choose to cooperate with God in the middle of, of, of a wilderness experience, no matter how painful it is, here's, here's what it says in the rest of that passage, which is, I would just summarize as trusting his promise in the desert. And that is, he promises to give us back our vineyards. You guys brought it out. He promises. His heart is to bless us. His heart is restitution. Somebody restoration. Somebody said it over here. He's already thinking, about the joy of giving us back what he had to temporarily remove from us so that he would have all of our heart. What about this? To turn trouble into hope. You mentioned it, Josh. To turn trouble. Achor is literally a reference to Joshua chapter seven, where after the big, huge victory of Jericho and all the walls came down and they went in and was like, woohoo, promised land. The very next battle, this little teeny town, somebody, Achan, Achan, had stolen some items and hidden them under his tents. And because of that, the people of God went up and were defeated. And several were killed and routed. And they were like, what? God, I thought you were gonna give us the promised land. This is our second battle and we lost already? Everybody's gonna hear about this and come after us and devour us. And so what happens is they brought Achan and finally he confessed, yes, I did this. And they had him and his entire family killed and destroyed because they had disobeyed the Lord. Would you call that trouble? But here in this passage, God's saying, you know what? I believe he's saying, even if your sin has been of the nature that it has hurt other people around you, or even that would invite God's judgment and, and punishment on you, if you're willing to let me do what I want in your heart, even that, I'll turn it around. And in place of the valley of trouble and of getting the punishment you deserve, I will open a door of hope. Jesus in the Gospel of John said, I am the gate. Through me, the sheep come in and go out and find safe passage. Jesus is saying, I'll be that door of hope for you. What about this? To make our hearts sing back to him. That verse, Hosea 2, 15, if you can pull it back up, that word that says, you will respond to me as, the, as you did at the beginning, uh, right here. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. That word respond can also mean sing. Imagine your bridegroom's heart is for you to sing back to him the way you once did, to have your first love the way you once did. And he's willing to go to all kinds of lengths and put us through all kinds of experiences because he knows how amazing that will be when he has all of our heart and we have his. Hosea 2, I'll read you the, the next few verses after, starting with verse 17. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips his bride's lips. No longer will their names be invoked, all the false idols. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will make covenant. Somebody spoke about it. I will make covenant with you forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond. Guess what that word means? That also can mean sing. Can you imagine God singing over us? Zephaniah speaks of that, 317, that God will rejoice over you with singing. I will respond to the skies. They will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, olive oil. They will all respond to Jezreel. Everything is singing to each other. Everything is responding. Everything's clicking. Everything's working. Does that sound like a good time? That's God's purpose for you and for me to say, I want to bless you. I want to cause the ground. I want to cause the rain. I want to, man, I want to bless you more than you can imagine. But it starts with enthroning me and me alone, letting me burn out of you what needs to be burned out, letting me solidify in you what needs to be solidified, and even following me like Abraham did to that place of painful surrender of even good things when we don't understand what God's doing, but worshiping him. Verse 23 says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Whew, that's God's ultimate. I mean, wow, that's the biggest win is that we will belong to him. That we'll be like, Lord, we are yours. So God, that's what we pray. Jesus, we come before you, God. And Lord, I don't know who's in a desert season right now, but I'm willing to say some of us are right now. God, I pray that your word to us would be life, that we would know that we are seen, that you are not ignorant of our situation, that you are not apathetic, but that you care, that you are working, that you are refining, that you are solidifying, that your ears are open to us, even if we don't hear your voice right now. God, that we would dig into the word of God that has been stored inside of us, that we would speak your word to each other when we can't hear it from above. God, we, we give you permission, Lord, with, with trembling and fear because it isn't always fun to endure the process. But God, I, man, if you, if you agree with this, just in your own spirit, whisper to the Lord, I give you permission to search me, to try me, to test me like that sensei who wants my promotion but is willing to allow all that you've done and are doing to be tested, to grow confidence, to grow strength, ultimately to receive glory for you. God, I pray you bless your sons and daughters. God, I pray if anybody is hopeless, that Lord, right now you would change that hopelessness and trouble into a door of hope. Lord, work in us. Jesus, Spirit of God, we desire to be the people that will respond to you, that will sing back to you the way we did on the day you redeemed us out of Egypt, on the day you redeemed us out of a sinful life. God, do what only you can do so that we will be your people of praise. I pray your blessing on your people now. In Jesus' name, amen.